good morning. I confess this is not where I expected to be this morning. <laughs> but I'm honored by the opportunity. I want you to know my first association with this congregation took place, I guess, about 1964. One of my earliest memories of the congregation here is Norman Starling in a white shirt and a very skinny little black tie coming up our front walk after we had visited, coming to visit with us. And it has been immensely, immensely gratifying to me over the years to see how the congregation here has prospered, has grown, and more than that, brothers, you elders, how it has matured through the years of my lifetime. That is a source of great joy to me. Do you know the difference between temptation and sin? Every appetite, every desire that you are capable of experiencing, God created. God created and God created to be satisfied and God created to be fully satisfied in ways that honor Him. Temptation is the illegitimate appeal to satisfy a legitimate desire or appetite in an illegitimate way. Christians are not exempt from temptation. Oh, there it goes, okay. Christians are not exempt from temptation. But we need to understand what it is. Temptation is an appeal to a legitimate appetite, a legitimate desire. But it's an appeal to satisfy it in some way that God never intended it to be satisfied. Sometimes Christians fall into the temptation to sin and make that choice to satisfy that desire in a way they should not. What's the loving thing to do when that happens? When a Christian becomes involved in sin, what is the loving thing for brothers and sisters in Christ to do. Jesus spoke to that in a general way in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17, speaking to his own disciples. Now, I'm not going to put this up as a slide, but if you take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 18, you start at verse 15, go down to verse 17, and what does Jesus say? If your brother sins against you, the English Standard Translation in this case, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, You've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. What's the loving thing to do? Well, when a believer sins, we don't just ignore it. We have a responsibility. Encourage that individual to repent. A very specific thing to do. Go tell him about it. Go one-on-one. -on -one. If he won't deal with it, take someone with you. Now, let's, let's pause here for a second. Go one-on-one. -on -one. If he hears me, 
problem solved. He repents. Fellowship restored. End of story. It needs go no farther. But if he says, no, nah, it's, it's, it's none of your affair. I, I'm going to, pre- who are you to, to judge me? All right, then. Take two or three, that at the mouth of two or three witnesses all may be established. Now notice, Jesus didn't say, go tell it around so that you can gather up some folks to take with you. That's two different things. But then he says, if two or three, if if the multiple testimony of witnesses is not enough to persuade him, then bring it to the church. And if he still won't change or she won't change then let him be as a publican and a tax collector but what's the point the point in all of this is to gain the brother to restore fellowship not just between the two of you but fellowship between this erring brother or sister and the God who loves them who gave Jesus to die for them Now, in this context of Matthew chapter 18, surely the words, the church, in that immediate context, anticipate the establishment of what we understand the church to be, the body of Christ, the kingdom. But Jesus speaking to his Jewish disciples in that moment, they would have understood it not as the church. The church did not exist except in God's mind in that moment. They would have understood it simply in its its generic sense, the assembly, the congregation, the gathering. Tell the whole group, in other words. That's what they'd have understood in that moment. Jesus says when a fellow believer commits sin, and we know about it, we have a responsibility. Encourage repentance. He shows a progression of efforts in that attempt to restore fellowship between that individual and God. To bring that person back from participating in the sin. And that progression of efforts can culminate in the whole congregation, the whole assembly, all the believers having to change their attitudes, our attitudes, toward the one who insists on continuing in sin. That's what verse 17 tells us. Sometimes Christians become involved in sin in a very, very public way. And I don't know anything that can demonstrate this more vividly to us, Wayne, than social media today. It just boggled, I I guess I'm getting old. I know I see more gray every morning than I used to. But it boggles my mind that people will post on Facebook and Snapchat and Instagram and all those other things, things that they would not say, they'll say on, online, pictures that, that they would not display personally in public, they'll display online, they'll talk about, they'll boast about in being involved in things that they would not dare to mention publicly in any other forum. Things that we would not tell on ourselves, that we would not want to reveal in person are oftentimes boasted with pictures online. What that means is that one of the hard points of being a Christian, one of the hard aspects of a situation where a Christian persists in sin is the fact that there are plenty of people. There are plenty of people in this world who seem almost eager to cheer that Christian on in their participation in sin. What if the world is not offended by something that the scriptures describe as sin? (laughs) Guess what? Brother Bill, the world is not offended by a whole lot of things that the scriptures describe as sin. Isn't that right? 
There, are, there is a whole range of behavior and attitude that the world finds perfectly acceptable, agreeable, endorsable that God's Word describes as sin. And sometimes when a child of God participates in sin, the world's very willing to cheer them on and encourage them to continue in it. It's nobody's business but His what that individual is doing. Who are you church people to, to call this woman a sinner? Uh, everybody in that church has sin. Why are you singling out this person? You know, that, that situation can be really hard for Christians when the sin is something that the community doesn't consider offensive. Some folks will even consider us bigots for not going along with it. Bigots for not approving of it. A prime example, sexual sins. There are a lot of folks who would very stridently assert today that an individual's sexual activities are nobody's business but that individual's. And not only that, God, they would say, doesn't care who we love or how we love. That's the attitude of the, I always get the alphabet soup wrong, the LGBTQ community, the LGBT uh, movement in our communities. That's their attitude. Some in that movement are extremely hostile and sometimes very hateful toward anybody who disagrees, who does not completely endorse their activities. Now, several weeks ago, a social media page that is maintained by a congregation of the Lord's people, merely published a link with a request. A link to a story on a local news station in which a sister congregation was being held up to public ridicule and being pilloried in public for having the nerve, for the elders having the nerve, to encourage a member of that particular congregation to repent of some very public sexually sinful activities. Now the, the page that I'm talking about merely published a link to the, to the news channel's story about it with the request, please pray for our brethren. That's all it was. A simple request. Please pray for our brethren. It was just a matter of hours until a, a hit back, a, a response came back in to that congregation's uh, Facebook page that said, in essence, why should we pray for them? Because they're a bunch of hateful, narrow-minded bigots who don't know what Christian love really is? That's actually a pretty good illustration of the secular community's attitude toward Christians. The secularist community looks at you and me as children of God and sees us as a bunch of bigots, a bunch of narrow-minded people intent on stymieing other people's fun. And that's the attitude that social media feeds your children on a day-in, day-out basis. When we talk about Christian love in relation to sin, the real heart of the issue lies in the very different ways that the secular, non-religious community and Christians see sin. Because we follow God. 
we have a very different point of view about what the loving thing, the loving response to sin ought to be. We're out of step with the secular community. Now, let's look at how the the world around us, the community around us, the environment around us uh, looks at what the loving thing to do really is. In the world, what what is the loving thing to do? Well, according to the secular world, the loving thing to do is endorse that sin. Just go along with it. Endorse it. Feel good about yourself in your sin. Approve of it. Choices about, let's go back to the obvious illustration, choices about sexual sin are probably the most openly hyped example of that attitude. On the one hand, you have parades and celebrations and and a, a, a misuse of the imagery of the rainbow to try to justify and normalize behavior that the scriptures uh, prohibit. And on the other hand, in those nations that proclaim themselves the most accepting, the most tolerant, the most liberal, you know, there are some nations where literally you can be brought up on civil charges and in a few cases even be jailed merely for reading allowed in a public setting like a worship assembly what the Bible says in Leviticus chapter 18 verse 22 or Romans chapter 1 verses 26 and 27 about LGBTQ behaviors. There have been several cases where various religious leaders and ministers have been put in jail for simply saying what the Bible says. That attitude of demanding endorsement and condemning any appeal to repent also extends to other matters as well. What do you call it when you stop an unborn baby's heart from beating while the infant is still in the womb? What is that? You're right, sister. That's a woman's choice, according to our world. And it's nobody's business but hers and her doctor's. It's a right. There's no sin attached to it, according to our community. How about taxing and regulating the sale and consumption of alcoholic beverages or marijuana? Not for medical use or anything of that sort, but just for recreational use. You know what that is? That's smart business. Might as well get the governor a share of that tax dollar. That's not enabling sin. In our world, those things are just acceptable. Even in the church, those who are determined, as they would say, to modernize the church basically by adopting and bringing in all of the the things that the so-called narrow-minded folks don't agree with, the, the denominational behaviors and practices and teachings. Well, that just makes us narrow-minded and unloving. This is a college town. You're blessed with a lot of young people here to learn. But do you realize that in my son's generation, which is that demographic, the, the 18 to about 30 age group, there is an enormous cross-section of that group for whom the very idea of suggesting you ought to consider where you stand with God and, and what you've been taught growing up and, and maybe think about making some changes. In other words, the idea of sitting down and opening the Word of God and discussing differences in beliefs with an idea to leading someone to have a right relationship with God, to change their previous beliefs, that is considered by many to be immoral. 
How dare you try to change someone else's beliefs? Who are you? Now, the net effect in all of those areas, the net effect is, is an atmosphere that basically says right or wrong doesn't matter. You have to endorse, you have to agree, you have to go along. Right and wrong don't matter. You just hush. If you don't agree, you just hush. Hands off my beliefs. Hands off my body. Hands off my opinions. Hands off my practices. You Christians, you're free to go inside your little building and close your doors and do what you want. But when you come out here in the world, you have to go along with us. The secular world's view is that God and his word, frankly, are irrelevant. They just really don't matter. They're a, a dead letter from an ancient time and a primitive people. That view says God and his word and, and our faith, your faith, you ought to change with the times to agree with what the world wants instead of encouraging people to stop participating in sins. <laughs> it's ironic. It really is ironic. By the way, it was Brother Gail Ponish who taught me what that word meant in the fifth grade. You wouldn't remember that, would you, brother? But I do. Gail was my homeroom teacher in the fifth grade. It is ironic that there is always, always, always pressure for the church to embrace the world, to embrace sin, to change with the times. But there's always, always, always opposition and resistance to the world embracing holiness. It's a one-way street, folks, as far as the community is concerned. From a sinner's point of view, human desires are the only thing that matter, and anything that gets in the way of them is wrong. Now, I've said all that to say this. What we see illustrated here is that is something we have failed to understand, we Christians. We failed to understand and teach the truth about why sin is wrong. Why is sin wrong? Well, the common perception is that talking about sin is all about rules and trying to control people and, and bend people to your will and carry. It's all about making people do what you as an elder in the church are trying to make them do. Pressuring people, Brother Joe, to do things that they don't really want to do to conform with your opinion. But you know what? Sin is not wrong because of its impact on other people. Sin is not wrong because of the bad effects it has on other people. Neither is sin wrong because other folks, church people, don't like it or disapprove of it. That's not why sin is wrong. Even even sexual sins, cheating on a spouse, engaging in homosexual or lesbian behaviors, those things are not wrong simply because most of the population does not do that. Sin is wrong because it contradicts, it violates the image of God himself that he created in each one of us. If you take your Bible and turn to Genesis chapter 1 and you look at the account of creation, in verse 26, what do you find the members of the Godhead saying? Let us make man in what? In our image, after our 
likeness. And we skim over that. That means that God created man with free will. And that's true. But it embodies so much more than that simple point. It means that we are made, modeled on God Himself. In Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 2, God told ancient Israel, speak to all the congregation, to the children of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. We're supposed to be like him, holy. Psalm 7 and verse 11 tells us that God is a just judge. He's a Fair judge. Here is a concept that our world really struggles with. Fair means what I want, not what's actually equitable. That's the way the world looks at it. But God is a fair, a righteous judge, and guess what? God is offended by, he is angry with the wicked every day. Why is God angry with the wicked? Why is God offended by sin? Because it contradicts, it violates, it makes a mockery of the image of himself that exists in each one of us. It's like turning us into cartoons or parodies of what God created. Habakkuk says of God in Habakkuk chapter 1 and verse 13, You are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look upon wickedness. Why do you look upon those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he? Peter repeated Moses' words from Leviticus in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verses 15 and 16 telling Christians, applying this now to us and to our generations, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct because it's written, be holy for I am holy, participating in any sin. It doesn't matter what the character of it is. It doesn't matter what the specifics of it are. Participating in any sin is using something that God provided, using a blessing that he has given to you namely yourself, in a way or for a purpose that he did not give it. He didn't give us permission to use it. The issue with particularly sexual sins is not about how we choose to love someone. Those things aren't wrong because of that. They're wrong because God never gave us permission to use ourselves or each other in those ways look at Romans chapter 1 and notice verses 26 and 27 there the apostle Paul says about the ancient Gentile world for this reason God gave them up to vile passions even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature likewise also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. Now, let me make this point. I've chosen to use this illustration because it is vivid and obvious. But every variety of the panoply of sexual sins are no worse, no more sinful, no more offensive to God than any other sin. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18 does tell us flee sexual immorality, flee fornication. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Yes, you can... You're misusing yourself in that. But there are no worse or less bad sins. Every sin is equally sinful. Just because it violates God's likeness 
in us. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 7 says, God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Several weeks ago, a couple of months now, there was a horrible mass murder in Atlanta near where I live. It was across town from us, thankfully. A number of women were murdered, shot to death. And the young man who committed the murders was apprehended. And in the wake of his apprehension, his identification and so forth, the denominational group of which he was a, a longtime member expelled him. Now, they're a Calvinist group, and they decided that, that uh, based on their Calvinist doctrine, he apparently wasn't saved after all in, in the first place. And we'll leave that discussion for another time. But it, it was interesting to me that they expelled him for multiple murders and not for the multiple sexual transgressions which he had previously admitted to. They seem to have missed the point that those previous sins were just as wrong as the horribly violent things that he then went on to commit. Christians wind up being called hypocrites for trying to change people who are involved in sin or for even identifying what they're doing as sin because they say, well, God made me this way. But that's a one-way street in that conversation. Try it. You might like it. Just get down off your high horse, quit being so narrow-minded, and, and try a little And before you condemn it. You might like No, hold on a minute. Who's the hypocrite now? Either it's a choice or it's not. And if it's not, why are you trying to persuade me to try it? Now, let me make this point. Every variety of sexual sin is mentioned as sin in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. But verse 11, verse 11 is the key there. Keep it in the wrong button. Paul says, such were some of you. To these Corinthian Christians, such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Now, those words were and but form a contrast. A clear before and after in those Corinthian Christians' behavior. Before they became Christians, they were participating in all of these varieties of sin. After they became Christians, as part of becoming Christians, they were no longer doing that. Something changed. Their choice. Someone who participates, for example in a same-sex relationship is no different than a man who abandons his wife for another woman. That situation, that, that uh, circumstance, the, the woman who indulges in, in a, a woman-with-woman woman relationship is no different than a woman who cheats on her taxes to claim a refund when she's actually owing taxes that ought to be paid. Those sins are no different than the child who lies to the teacher and said the dog or the vacuum cleaner or whatever ate my homework when the fact of the matter is I just didn't do it. All of those sins, if they're not repented, will lead to condemnation by God for not doing his will. Matthew chapter 7 verse 21. He that doeth the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now, why is sin wrong? It violates the image of God that he put in us. 
It misuses the blessings that he provided for us. And more than that, or in addition to all of that, it breaks our fellowship with him. It separates us from him. Go to Isaiah 59 and what does the prophet there tell us? Sin separates from God. Our secular society objects to the idea of sin because it implies restraint. Because it tells us we can't do something that we want to do. It takes us back to that notion of of appetite and desire. I want. There is a right way to satisfy that want. But I don't want to do it the right way. I want the immediate gratification. Our world objects to the whole notion of sin. Because we hate to be restrained as, as people. We hate to be restrained from what we want. But God wants us to follow his example. Now, where there's sin, the truly loving thing to do is what Jesus did. What did Jesus do? Look at the example of Jesus. Do what he did. Well, Jesus never met a gay person, so he never said anything against it. You know, if that particular proclivity is even half as common in the population as it's claimed to be, there's no way he did not encounter not just a gay person but perhaps many gay people and remember what John wrote in the very last verse of the gospel record John 21 verse 25 there are also many other things that Jesus did which if they were written one by one I suppose even the world itself could not contain all the books that could be written what John is telling us in other words is there's a whole lot more that Jesus said and did than heaven reveals to us. Well, some would say he never condemned it. But you know what? Jesus did speak to the subject in the broad sense once, twice, three, four, five, six, seven times. Seven times In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he spoke about fornication, which includes, as an umbrella term, every variety, every variety of that particular sin. But what did Jesus do? He always directed people to righteousness. Look at John chapter 8. The woman caught in the very act of adultery. John chapter 8, verses about 1 through 11. Here's a woman who was, was caught humiliatingly in the very act apprehended and what did Jesus do he directed her accusers back to the law let him who is without sin cast the first stone and then when they all left is there no one left to accuse you no one my lord go your way and sin no more he didn't excuse what she did but under the law he could not condemn her to suffer punishment go your way sin no more he directed her back to the right path what about Matthew chapter 23 all of those woes woe unto you scribes and Pharisees hypocrites for this and this and this and this and this and this and this in every case what did Jesus do directed them back to God's design take your Bible turn to Matthew chapter 19 look at verses 4 through 9 And there you find Jesus being challenged not about uh, same sexual relationships or, or things of that sort, but about the issue of divorce and remarriage. And what did Jesus do with the scribes and the Pharisees there? Directed them back to God's design. From the beginning, it has not been so. He never directs us toward human abilities or desires. One of the hardest facts for us to wrap our heads around as 
people, as individuals. One of the hardest things for us to, to grasp and appreciate is that the ability to do something is not the right to do it. The fact that I can do something doesn't give me the right to do You know what? I've, I've got a... I've got a, a I'm, I'm, I'm very blessed in many, many ways. And one of the blessings I have is that I have a, a diesel pickup that, as far as I know, has the capability to do 100 and something miles an hour down the highway. I've, I've never driven at that fast. The speed limit's 75 in Texas. Great old big heavy thing. Very stable. I'm confident that it would, it would exceed the speed limit by a wide margin. Not in a hurry, it's a diesel, but it would get there. But you know what? The ability to go that fast doesn't give me the right to do that. The fact that you can doesn't mean you should. Our ability to do something doesn't make it right for us to do it. Now when we look at Jesus, the loving thing to do about sin, Jesus directed people to righteousness. I've not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance, Luke chapter 5 verse 32. Because we're human, we're fallible, we're emotional. Sometimes it's, it's hard for us to get self out of the way when sin is in the picture, when we're trying to encourage a sinner to repent. Maybe that sinner is a, a child or a parent or a, a loved one, a spouse, a, a, a treasured friend, a brother, sister in Christ. Sometimes we can get angry. We can be angry, emotional, when a sinner refuses to repent. Remember what Paul told the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 4 and, and verse 26. Be angry. Be angry. That's the normal emotional response to that situation. Here is a sin. Oh, I'm not going to stop it. But you need to. Well, I'm not going to. But you ought to. Well, I'm not going to. Be angry. That's the normal emotional response. But do not sin. Don't let that anger become an excuse for you to fall into sin. Recognize the difference between the two. It is true, though. Sometimes we handle those situations with a whole lot less grace, a whole lot less kindness and patience than we ought to. We can handle a situation of trying to restore a sinner poorly, we can approach it unwisely, especially when we're emotionally involved in it. And it's easy, easy, easy to second guess after the fact. Why didn't you do this? Why didn't you say that? Don't you think that's what the individual's asking themselves? But never forget, urging repentance is not about, and it should never be about trying to force a sinner to repent. It's not about trying to control that person so that they do what I want them to do. Repentance is, try, is about trying to get that person to look at God. To look at God and compare himself or herself as God's creation with the creator. What did Jesus do? Well, he directed people to righteousness. Our ability to do something doesn't make it right. The loving thing to do according to to Jesus. Repentance can never be, must never be, about comparing ourselves with each other. About uh, trying to say, well, I'm right and you're wrong. 
when the fact of the matter is we all do sin. What does Romans 3 and verse 23 tell us? All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Recognizing sin in another person and calling them out for it is not hypocrisy. Let me say that again. I want you to hear this. Recognizing sin in a brother or sister in Christ and calling them out for it is not hypocrisy. Recognizing sin in another person and calling them out for it and then refusing to admit that you're less than perfect, that's hypocrisy. Holding yourself up as if you're the ideal standard, that's hypocrisy. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1 makes it plain. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a, in a spirit of gentleness, a spirit of meekness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. You see, what our world hates about sin is not the sinfulness of it. What our world hates about sin is recognizing that it's wrong, admitting that it's, that it's wrong. And that's why our society keeps trying to force us to approve of it, to accept it as good, to, to, to say that the loving thing to do is to endorse it and accept it and enable it. That's what Paul was describing in Romans chapter 3 and verse 8, where some were claiming that he taught let us, do good that evil may, uh, let us do evil that good may come, but that was far from what he was actually doing. That's also why the community at large will mock every effort by Christians to encourage honest, pure, upright living, including corrections that are, in, that are directed at repentance. Encourage repentance, that's what Jesus did. The loving thing is to direct sinners back to God. Now, I want to leave you with some words by a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I don't often want to quote from a non-Christian source. Bonhoeffer was actually a Lutheran pastor in Nazi Germany before World War II who, if memory serves me, died in a German concentration camp because he was not a Nazi and would not go along with it. What he said, though, is spot on right in this particular circumstance. The messengers of Jesus will be hated to the end of time. They will be blamed for all of the divisions that rend cities and homes. Jesus and his disciples will be condemned on all sides for undermining family life and for leading the nation astray. They will be called crazy fanatics and disturbers of the peace. The disciples will be sorely tempted to desert their Lord. But the end is also near, and they must hold on and persevere until it comes. Only he will be blessed who remains loyal to Jesus and his word until the end. Wherever sin exists, the truly loving thing to do for Christians is to go on living and modeling and telling the truth. Telling the truth about God's character that he defines purity and that he created us to be like him. If you don't take anything else home with you today, take this with you. If you don't get anything else, you got the lesson. If you get this and remember it, Sin is wrong because it violates the image of God that he put in each one of us. Go on telling the truth about God's character and the fact that we're created in his image. Go on telling and modeling and living the truth about salvation, about what God offers 
and what he requires. Go on living and modeling and telling the truth about the church that Jesus actually built and that's where salvation is according to Acts 2 verse 47 and Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 10. Go on telling and modeling and living the truth about the nature of sin that it ultimately is an offense against God and tell the truth about morality as well because that's part of sin and righteousness also. Because we're God's children, and most of us here, I think, are members of the Lord's body. Because we're God's children, we need to tell those truths kindly. We need to tell those truths consistently. We need to tell those truths patiently, teaching, teaching, teaching about the love of God and about the mercy of God so that those who sin will want to return to him. It's not about trying to control other people. It's not about trying to boss folks around. It's about encouraging those who are made in the image of God to live up to what he has called us to be. God calls each of us to be his children. And if you have not taken the first steps in faith by believing in Jesus Christ and repenting of sin and confessing your faith publicly and being baptized into Christ, what holds you back? What reason do you have to delay? Everything is prepared. I can hear the water in the baptistry. At least I think that's what I hear. Why delay? One of the greatest blessings of being a child of God is the realization that when we do fall short, when we do sin and stumble, God waits with open arms to welcome us back if we will repent. And we have the privilege of joining hands with one another at God's throne in prayer on each other's behalf as well. Elijah's going to come now and lead us while we stand together and sing what we call a song of encouragement. If you need to answer the Lord's invitation, let me encourage you. Do it now. It is the loving thing to do in response to the God who loves you. Come while we stand together and sing. <laughs>